Welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name is Jason Barnard and that was Sparks and This Town Ain't Big Enough for the both of us from the classic album Kimono My House. I got the huge pleasure to speak to Martin Gordon here today, bassist, songwriter, producer and man of many talents and we'll be taking a chronological look at his time in the music industry, obviously all the way from Sparks up to present and he's got a great solo album out today. Uh, welcome, Martin. Hi, glad to be here. Was that your first hit single as a musician? Yeah, it was. It was my first band and first, uh, not my first recording, yeah. but um, I, I had a kind of schoolboy group of friends and we did some recording, but um, it was the first proper thing, yeah. How did you get involved with, with Sparks? Was it a, an, an ad in the Enemy or Melody Maker? Or? Exactly, exactly. In the back of Melody Maker, because... In those days, people were completely unashamed, you know, and 
10 years later, then they would always disguise themselves as name band or whatever. <laughs> but uh, back in the uh, naive days of 1972 and three, you know, you would see Roxy Music need bass player, Sparks want bass player, and um, Supertramp hmm. also identified themselves as wanting a bass player. So I applied for all three and um, got one of them. What was the audition process for Sparks? Did you just come along? And- um, well, unlike the other, the, the Roxy and the Supertramp thing were proper, uh, or, you know, regular auditions, as we know and love them. Uh, in Sparks, it was um, sitting in a kitchen and talking to people. And it was it was some months before we actually got down to the thing of playing, which which you might consider to be fairly essential, but um, apparently it wasn't. How old were you? I was nineteen when the uh, oh, oh no, I was eighteen. There was a period. There was quite a long period before we actually started recording, and then by the time the album came out, I was twenty. So uh, and it took about a year. So I guess I must have been end of eighteen or nineteen. Now that album is um, is revered, and um, when you were making it, were, were you kind of aware of you were onto something good? Well, I, it sounded very good, you know, and it was one of those things that sometimes happens to me when you you do something, and in the room there is this feeling that that's amazing. It's usually a thing which causes laughter, but laughter in in a kind of celebratory sense. And I had that feeling often, but of course I didn't uh, allow myself to think any further into the future. So I just thought, this is this sounds great, and if we get it into a studio, it will sound great. And uh, you know, I didn't overthink it. Uh, do you actually remember recording this town? Uh, I do actually, because. <laughs> Uh, I just stopped being a technical orphan, so I was very methodical. And so I actually found a couple of years ago a uh, a list that I'd made of all the titles and the dates of the recording, and the location and the engineer. So with that, um, I do. Um, I remember Richard Digby Smith, who I'm now I'm pleased to say once again in contact with. He was the engineer on the This Town sessions. Yeah. And uh, it was Richard, or Digby, as he now likes to be known, um, who came up with the idea of the gunshots. So, um, yeah, I remember, I remember most of the sessions, actually. I do remember very clearly being in Basing Street and looking at the, uh, the big, uh, they had big acoustic screens with a, a glass panel in the middle. And uh, we were recording something. And I looked into the glass panel and I saw the rest of the band reflected in the glass panel. And we were standing in, in Island Records studio. I, don't, I had a thing about Island anyway. All my favourite bands were on Island. Mm. And so the place to be, you know, the, the Holy of Holies was going to be Basing Street. And uh, I remember looking in this, uh, in this baffle and seeing the entire band reflected in it as we were doing something. And I thought, fuck, I'm in Basing Street and we're making a record for Island Records. I'm sure things are not going to get much better than this. <laughs> And our second track from Kimono in My House is Amateur Hour. Did you get much freedom and space to develop your own bass lines? Um, I did, but Amateur Hour is, is a curious one because um, I was playing a Rickenbacker and uh, with the assistance of Digby, we got it sounding very good. And, you know, <laughs> many people say around the bass guitar forums, yes, this is one of the examples of a of a perfect sounding Rickenbacker. And of course, they, they say the bass lines also themselves are not bad. 
But um, on on the case of Amateur Hour, I, we recorded the thing, and then I was asked to replace the bass line with um, a different instrument, but not change the bass line in any way. Hmm. So in other words, I was keeping my original bass line, and I was just playing it again with a more boring sounding bass, and it was clear they were, they were looking for boring. They were, they were becoming more and more interested in boring at that point. So I, I, I begrudgingly replaced it, but um, doing boring was not really terribly appealing to me. So what was the span of, of time that you were in in, in Sparks? Was, was it just the one album that you were on? Yeah. So from uh, discussions in something like August 1973 up to um, my ejection in uh, May 74. Why did you leave? <laughs> it's a good question. Well, I'd left because they said, I don't want you in the group anymore. <laughs> Somebody phoned me up at four o'clock in the morning and said, oh, hello, Martin, how are you? Oh, they don't want you in the group anymore. So this, an English person would have been more circumspect, but uh, he came from New York. Um, I don't know. There's a bunch of uh, interviews around that offer various reasons, but uh, who knows? <laughs>
And so how long was it before you were starting to collaborate with uh, Chris Townsend, then drummer originally of, of John's Children, and, and that started the, the basis for Jet, didn't it? It did. Well, he was around um, during the Sparks auditions, because uh, you may or may not know it was just the two Americans, and so they had to find a new band. So their manager of the time uh, offered Chris as the kind of the drummer for the auditions, and uh, we got along very well. So I've known him all the way through that process anyway. And then uh, when I was out on my ear, he was also out on his ear because I was replaced by half of his band. So it, it gets kind of complex, but... Um, so I think we met and, uh, you know, downed pints and bitched furiously about whoever it was that we had in common. And then we said, well, why, why don't we put a group together? And we rehearsed as a duo about a week or something. And then we thought, wait a minute, no, perhaps, perhaps we better go down the uh, traditional route of getting a singer and getting a guitar player and all those other things that apparently you need. So then he brought along his old uh, Green Anorak friend from John's Children to sing a bit and we dug up I can't even bring myself to say his name that guy who was in all these other groups but most recently in Roxy Music oh um, Dave O'List oh that's it I knew it was something like that um, and we'd heard his we'd heard him and uh, I, I remember I called his management because we, we heard a tune of his on the radio it was a Brian Ferry solo single I called his management and said could you possibly get this guy to get in touch with me and normally people would be really kind of uh they'd be secure about these things and they'd say okay leave us leave us your name and number and we'll pass it along and possibly um if it's appropriate uh, you'll get a call at some point whereas these people actually said no 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 here's his number have you got a pen <laughs> so, later in life i realized that they were clearly desperate to get rid of him <laughs> So I took him off their hands for a short period of time. Didn't you work with uh, Roy Thomas Baker on, on the, the first Jet recordings? Yes, that's right. Um, we had the good fortune, I suppose, or possibly misfortune to get hooked up to a management company who, um, who also managed Gary Glitter, which is not really something we want to <laughs> brag about these days. But he was a this was a guy called Mike Neander, and he was something of a music business mover and shaker. And for example, he he arranged the strings on She's Leaving Home yeah. when George Martin said that he wanted a night off. So he was somebody who, who was clearly listened to, and uh, he flogged us to uh, CBS and. Um, they wanted to uh, keep it all on a kind of twinkly, stellar, celebrity, name-dropping level. And so um, Roy came on. Yeah, Roy was very good. And we have a, a live version of Cover Girl. Is that one of your tracks? I think you were more involved in the creative process with Jet, weren't you? Yeah, I wrote them all except for some song about losing a river, <laughs> which I didn't write and which CBS, in their enormous wisdom, chose to be the first single, which pissed me off. Something rotten. Yeah. But yes, Cover Girl was on mine. Uh, and it was, of course, vaguely discussed in Sparks when um, I said, here, I've got a song that I think we could probably do. And then um, and then there was silence. That sometimes tips the balance, doesn't it, where if you start bringing songs in, they think, oh, he might be getting a bit too big for his boots, so it might kind of upset the dynamics. Well, that is true. However, 
as I said, um, our, this process of joining Sparks began with a discussion, not with musical, not with playing. And one of the, part of the discussion was me saying, what do you want from your bass player? And then replying um, in words of one syllable or less that they wanted a collaborator, ah. a musical collaborator who they described as a Lennon to Ron's McCartney or possibly vice versa. So in other words, it had already been made very clear to me that what they were looking for was somebody who was going to um, deliver ideas. So you're right. Usually things go skew if at that point, but this um, had some, there was a precedent. You know. So for Jet, you'd actually got a bit of a sort of well of ideas ready to let loose. Yeah, absolutely. We had an album's worth of material, um, which we which we had ready before we started um, the negotiations with CBS. So it was all ready to go.
So now we have a, a live version of It Would Be Good Diamonds and Wang Di Putin now Wang Di Putin Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Wang Di Putin was introduced to me by um, Chris Townsend and the uh, singer um, as a song that we've written, uh, some words that we've written. Would you like to put these words to music? And they were great words. Mm. And they were completely unlike any other words that either of them had, had written, you know, because I'd, I'd seen their John's Children's stuff. Plus, in, when I was at school, I was a kind of, I was a closet John's Children fan as much as one could be. So I was a new, I was aware of their songs. Some of them were okay. Some, some of them were not okay. <laughs> but the words that they, they showed me were fabulous. And so I thought, oh, yeah, okay. I'll do it, and, and and we'll do it. And it was on Jet Home, Bang the Putnamot. And then bugger me if, about 30 years later, I bought a book called The Devil's Dictionary by Ambrose Bierce. Um, and it's a dictionary in the sense that each um, chapter began with a different letter. And when I turned to chapter W, <laughs> there was Bang the Putnamot, word for word, much longer. Uh, and this was written in... I, if I'm right, uh, 1915 or so. And so I called Chris up and I said, oh, by the way, the, the strangest thing has happened. I found Wang Dipunawa in this book by, by Ambrose Bierce. And he said, oh, didn't I? I thought I told you. <laughs> he hadn't told me. Did you make recordings for a second Jet album, but it didn't get released? Was, is that what happened? Um, we made demos, yeah. Right. We got, sent, we got sent off to the country and uh, we put a bunch of songs together and then CBS came down to listen to them. And we actually strung all the songs together as one piece and we told them it was one song. <laughs> and they didn't, they didn't know any better, so they thought that we were seriously offering them a 40-minute long piece of music which went through all these various stages. And so to cut a long story short, they dropped us. Uh, so we never actually recorded them properly, but we had demoed it.
And this was a time where, obviously, in the 70s, the, the cycle of, of what was popular at the time kept shifting. And Jet, in a way, morphed into radio stars? Is that a- uh, Kind of. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm not sure if it was because of shifting tastes or our general incompetence, really. I mean, we weren't, <laughs> you know, we weren't very good at that point, let's face it. I mean, it was my first... Okay, Sparks was my first group in terms of a member, being a member. Jet was my first group in terms of, you know, doing everything else. And uh, we were spectacularly incompetent. I do remember um, we played, we did a tour with uh, Ian Hunter and Mick Ronson. And, and of course, we learned a lot from that. And then we did our own tour and there was, we did a gig in Newcastle. And um, we all came out on stage after a very dramatic opening intro tape thing and then um the guitarist got his uh he got he got his guitar cable caught around his legs and turned around so much that he couldn't move his couldn't move his feet and he fell over on his back and he landed on top of his guitar pedals uh whereupon his guitar began feeding back and uh and he couldn't stand up and then at that point, I thought, this is fucking ridiculous. And I, I counted the band off and we started the first number. So we played the first number without guitar, during which the roadies came on and they unwound him and they stood him up and they unplugged his guitar and they switched his pedals off and they got him functioning and all this stuff. And we came to the end of the song and then he approached the front of the stage once he was finally mobile again uh, and said, down the microphone, why did you start without me? I wasn't ready. <laughs> so there's actually a very good snapshot of how inept we were. And so I think that was probably the reason it wasn't really good. I mean, in the studio, you couldn't hear any ineptness because of Roy Baker's mm. production skills. Um, I mean, we, we recorded the whole album just with bass and drums because the guitar and the keyboards um, couldn't, seemed to play either in time or in tune or both. So it was an extremely laborious process, but it sounded good at the end, you know. For radio stars, that's kind of when punk started coming in and you actually got on top of the pops with Nervous Rex. He had a hit single. Yeah, we did. Somehow we hooked up with Chiswick Records um, and Chiswick were kind of a punk label. They heard four songs and two of them were kind of well, actually, they're all jet songs, but two of them were slow and two of them were fast. And they said, okay, we'll take the fast songs. <laughs> we love the fast songs. And so from that point on, of course, as any self-respecting musician would do, we only played fast songs. <laughs> um, and then actually along came punk. So this was probably like a year, this was 76. Right. Or beginning of 76. So, you know, it was around, it was before the punk explosion, but it just so happened that Chiswick, was also moving in that direction in terms of label, you know, identity. We were sort of moving in that, that direction because we were playing faster and louder. Um, and then we started seeing that everybody was wearing leather jackets, so we figured, okay, well, let's, sorry, let's go and get leather jackets. <laughs> I mean, we were never real punks, but um, we were punkish enough for people to think that we were. When I spoke to Andy Ellison quite a while back, he talked about how things changed overnight with that hit single and like it attracted a, a bit more of a poppy crowd to the gigs and, and there was cues and 
for a very brief time, a little bit of mania might be too strong a word. <laughs> no, it, it's absolutely true, actually. Surprisingly, most of the stuff he says isn't. There was a clear uh, overnight change after we did Top of the Pops when suddenly there would be massive crowds and there'd be people leaning through the windows of the car that we were arriving in asking for things that we had touched, <laughs> for example. I remember this very clearly. And... Uh, <laughs> Some girl asked for something, and all I all I had was a banana, which I'd eaten. So I said, well, "I'm sorry, I haven't got anything, but I got a I got a banana skin. Would that be any good?" And she said, "Yes, yes." So I gave her the banana skin. Uh, this was clearly a, a different thing. You know, it was going in a different direction at that point. When I spoke to Andy, he mentioned about your appearance on um, Old Grey Whistle Test and mm. there was also a bit of a controversy with the Beast of Barnsley, given that it was a, about um, a killer. Yes, I think what we did on the Whistle Test was the revised version. Right. Um, so we recorded it and then the Beast's mother uh, took exception to some of the words and so we were advised to... Uh, I was advised to rewrite a particular line. So we wrote, I, I rewrote the line, and then we had to go and re-record the vocal and remix it. So when we, um, when we got to the whistle test, it was the new version. But looking at that thing now, uh, um, it's quite amazing. It, and it was all, there was no um, tightrope. There was no safety net there. It was all completely live and spontaneous, and uh, it worked very well, I must say. So was it just... Uh... A similar process for radio stars in the 
did the label drop the group after initial success? No, it wasn't. Uh, the process was that I was effectively um, removed from my own group. Um, Gosh. Yes. Uh, I won't bore you with the details. And uh, then they were dropped <laughs> because they, <laughs> they recorded a whole bunch of songs, which were, as was predictable, complete crap. I've read that you went over to Paris and you, you became a producer. Chiswick mm. Records had a partner in Barclay Records and they were our distributor in France. And so I, somehow I, I ended up in Paris um, producing uh, different people for them, which is great for me as a, as a kind of growing artist. I learned all kinds of, kinds of skills. I have to do a new work with new people every week. Um, and that went on for um, about a year or so, I think. Yeah. It went on until I'd spent the entire production budget, basically. <laughs> and and my, my contact was at the record company was a guy called Philippe Monet. And he called me into the office one day and said, Martin, I'm afraid we have run out of budget. Your budget is exhausting. I said, I, I assume, Philippe, you will be changing your name to Philippe No Monet. <laughs> he was not amused. What's this about playing with the Stones then? Oh, uh, well, that was at the same time as, uh, so I was in Paris. Yeah. And one of the bands that I was playing with, um, a group called Angie, their guitarist knew somebody on the Rolling Stones road crew. And he said, if we go over to where they're recording at this uh, EMI studio, uh, Pafé Marconi studio there may be some fun to be had and so we went over there and uh, there was indeed fun to be had and the more fun we had uh, the the more we moved through the various rings of security <laughs> until when we were at maximum fun um, we found ourselves in the studio and um, and then um Mick Jagger complained about not having a bass player because um, the bass player, Bill Wyman, wasn't there. And so I seized the moment to say, well, hey, what do you know, guys? It's your lucky day. So we uh, played for the rest, of the, the rest of the session, songs that he showed me. Uh, and then I was asked back as well. So that was quite a, I, I returned on a few occasions. That even made the papers, I think, didn't it? Yeah, it did. Is is this the new Rolling Stone? They said in all the journalistic integrity and wisdom and insight. <laughs> Good fun though, absolutely. What was that like playing with the Rolling Stones? Well, it was amazing um, because they set up in the studio as if it was on stage, so it wasn't on for some reason. I know they they do they have different approaches, apparently. but on this occasion, you're all kind of standing in a long line, and then there was a PA where the vocals came out of. Uh, and, of course, I've been used to, you know, looking over my shoulder and seeing various people singing. And this time it turned out to be Mick Jagger with an enormous beard. So that was, yeah, it was a pleasure, really. What sort of material What was it, do you recall? I don't know. I only got a... Um, I actually got somebody... I got... Chris Kimsey kindly gave me a cassette with one song on it but I can only deduce the name and I have no idea whether it came out or not. Right. But I asked him if I could take something away with me uh, on one day and he said, well, I'm going to have to check it out. And uh, and then he came back and said, oh, Mick wants to have a word with you. Uh, but I was, I was busy having fun. 
as I recall. And so it was, it was like an hour later before I finally managed to find uh, Mick. By which time, of course, he'd completely forgotten that he wanted to have a world with me. <laughs> went on to uh, to play with quite a lot of artists in in the 80s and 90s in particular yeah well th- there was a period when in after that uh and before playing with all these other people when I, I put my own studio together in east london and there we did jingles and stuff uh, for i think capital radio was one of my big clients and through having my own studio then various people would come to me and then through some of these people that would come to me uh, I made contact with um, with other people. You know, it's it's network building really. And through this network, yes, then I had I had a good um, I don't know almost ten years I guess of uh, doing stuff with other people. It was different kinds of stuff. Some of it was was playing. Some of it was engineering. Some of it was co-writing, and a lot of it was um, miming. But. As we know, mime is money, and in my case, it certainly was money. So, like TV appearances, and you were you were in the yeah. band in the background as the the artist mimed. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and I was completely shameless. I would take anything, you know. Um, I was supposed to be a keyboard player at this point, and uh, we did 
uh, we did a German TV show called Fett and Das with Tom Jones, and I was supposed to be his keyboard player. And we turned up, and there was no keyboard. And they said, "But we we do have a set of congas." <laughs> so I said, "Okay, I'll play congas then," and did. Uh, so next we have Fathom Five by Mira. So that's quite a, that's a very interesting project of yours involving a, a diverse range of influences and a diverse range of artists, isn't it? It is. Um, it fits in because some of the people I met during my studio time um, hooked me up with Boy George and I did quite a lot of stuff in London with George and then uh, somehow he got hooked into this project which was being recorded in Bombay and they needed um, a sort of engineer musician and so I went to Bombay for three months and um, we recorded with these amazing uh, Indian classical musicians who were completely unknown to me, but it's only later in life that I realised who they were. They were all legendary Indian classical guys whose names you see on all, all, all the records. But, I, you know, I was kind of... I was ignorant in those days. And we made this great stuff. And I met... There was a guy in, um, who was part of this operation who was... Um, it was a great guy. And we decided that when we came back to London after this Bombay experience, uh, we should try and do something. And th this song that's coming up is actually basically his song. Um, and he was, I suppose he, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be unfair to say that he, he was something of a musician, but he was more of a, an, an ideas type person. And so then my role in this case was to be less of an ideas type person and uh, the sort of person who could pull all these ideas together. Um, and yeah, this one, I think, worked out extremely well. Oh, my God. 
Next, we also have, Mira, a Todd Rundgren track, Timey Demons, but this time live at the Montreux Jazz Festival. So what was it like assembling the band for what was a very, very high-profile show? Well, it was, it was a complete nightmare, actually, because I had no budget. We were, we were on um, JVC, and as you say, it was a very high-profile thing. So, of course, once you say to people, do you want to come and play with us at the Montreux Jazz Festival? You know, they see pound symbols rotating in front of their eyes. Uh, so it was really difficult and I had to call in lots of friends. Um, and then by, by sheer circumstance, I found this great singer uh, who, who was from Suriname. So he, she fitted well into the, uh, into the mirror thing, even though she turned up on stage wearing this kind of weird basket, which um, was a complete shock to me and everybody else as you can see, as your listeners may be able to um, pick out on the YouTube video. Um, but Todd Rundgren was always a favourite of mine. I mean, a great songwriter and great singer. His version of Todd of Tiny Demons is quite different to ours. And I think ours is a, um, is a solid rendering of it. Yeah, it brings out different aspects of the song. That's right. It's a kind of reimagining of it. And, and it always used to be... I always used to love when people reimagine songs so you know rather than just doing a cover version which sounds like the original which um as much as we love them cheap tricks 
covers usually tend to be yeah. pretty close to the originals. You know, if you look at the move stuff, for example, there is another way of doing it. Um, and I always go back to a fantastic example of that is the Yes version of Simon and Garfunkel's America, yeah. which is like totally unrecognizable. Well, 99% unrecognizable, but in a good way. It's, it's really finding stuff inside some chords and expanding it, you know, melodically and harmonically and rhythmically and then arrangement-wise. So that's kind of, it's, that's sort of what we do with uh, Tiny Demons. Some people say that Todd is God.
Now we have a bit of a montage here, uh, assembling I Got the Buzz, but um, different versions from different bands you were in at different times, the Blue Meanies, Radio Stars, and a, a reactivated, more modern version of John's Children. Blue Meanies, they were a band that you were in in around 1980. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, it gets rather complicated. After I came back from Paris, um, before I set up my studio, I had this brief recording operation called Blue Meanies with um, a guy who um, was a great singer, and who sang on some of the Radio Star stuff and who played sax with us live, kind of called Chris Gent. So we recorded that. And then I think um, you, have, you fast forward a few years to 1982 or so, and um, Radio Stars, a reformed, revamped version of Radio Stars, did a couple of gigs. And I roped in a new mate of mine, um, a guy called Hugh, Hugh McDowell, who was the cellist with ELO. the ELO, yeah. who I'd actually met in Paris while I was um, producing one of these groups for Barclay. He was on one of the sessions and we got matey and so then I wrote him into uh, the Radio Stars recording session where we did I Got the Buzz. And then as you, as you rightly say, there was the John's Children version, which was... I think there you have to jump forwards about 10 years or something. And that was with Chris Bosbora. And um, for some reason, somebody clearly sat on the uh, reverb on button and refused to get off it. It was probably Boz because there's so much reverb on that track. And then I think in this segue, we finally come back to the, uh, the Ur version of the Blue Meanings. So here we have a celebration of I Got the Buzz I think that's the only time that phrase will ever be used in <laughs> broadcasting history.
now we get to your solo years. It seemed to take a while before your solo career really kicked off. So we have only one dream per person from the baboon in the basement. So was that your first solo album, even though it was just under 20 years ago now? Yeah, it was. Um, I wasn't sure that I could write songs anymore. Was it was the main thing, I think, which is why I didn't write songs anymore. And then I was also aware that I needed somebody to sing, to sing them. And it just so happened that while I was... I was away and uh, I was in Turkey working with uh, Sister Naxu. I remember, well, I got an email from um, a Swedish jet fan who said, um, would you like to come over to Sweden and try and write some songs together? And I said, hey, why not? So um, I pitched up in Stockholm and Pella Ormgren was his name, still is. We wrote some tunes together and then I said um, okay so um, who's going to sing these songs we, we, we were working in the studio and he said well I well I am dear of course hmm. I said what you are singing are you I said oh well this should be interesting and then he had this fucking amazing uh, rock and roll Robin Zander style voice so then when I went back when I came back home to Berlin I thought okay here's a guy if I can persuade him and if I can come up with some decent material then maybe this is a way forward. And so it was for, and then we did, I don't know, six or six or seven records together. And he's such a great singer. And now I, I sing my own stuff, but um, partly as a result of his encouragement and uh, tuition, but really he's, uh, I, I envy anybody who can sing like that.
steps in places you've never discovered Treat the bank with complete disdain Well, you just won't come there again Your footsteps are followed, your face is on every cover So now we have Modern Major General, which is a Gilbert and Sullivan song. But you've had an affinity to Gilbert and Sullivan, haven't you? Because you touched bass and did the odd track of theirs over quite a wide period. Yes. Um, on the solo records, I tried to shoehorn in a few covers you know, where possible, and some of them were Gilbert and Sullivan covers. And then I thought, well, you know, they are so great. Wouldn't it be interesting to try and reimagine Gilbert and Sullivan as if the Small Faces were their backing band? That was my thing. Yeah, that was the concept. And so then I listened to their entire output, which took me about ten days. I think it was really yeah. There's a lot of stuff out there. It's just the most appropriate, however many songs it is. And um, yeah, and treated them like they were contemporary pop songs. You can see that working because there's a certainly in relation to the pop lineage lineage, there's always been a, a bit of a vaudeville or artistic side to sort of pop and rock anyway. So I think the, the melding of the, the two genres works really well. That's exactly what I think. I mean, this vaudeville thing, and it's a particularly English thing. It's not necessarily an American thing. And this music, you know, the musical genre you can trace back to um, Gilbert and Sullivan in a way. You know, musical is, is kind of, is not elaborate, but actually musical deals with the identical topics. And it's, it works on these two levels. You know, it has a kind of surface um, earworm level and um, most musical also is actually addressing kind of serious topics underneath it. And so I felt you could you could play one off against the other. You know, you could take what is it? I mean, the Gilbert and Sullivan Gilbert and Sullivan stuff is actually social critique, you know, but it's disguised as humour, and that to me has always been the best. You know, whether it's well, I mean, in the case of the Bonzos, I was going to say the Bonzos. It wasn't it wasn't disguised very much. It was just funny, but there's you know it's the combination of Serious intent and um, comedic delivery. It's something like that.
up to date here with uh, Will of the People from your OMG album. You're originally from England, but based over in Germany. And so the uh, the whole Brexit <laughs> hoo-ha certainly had ripples. Uh, it did. Well, I'm German now. I mean, I'm not exclusively German, but I had, I have a German passport and a German identity card. And, uh, yeah. you know, I mean, from, of course, well... <laughs> One doesn't want to dwell on these things. Anyway, um, the will of the people is a phrase that has been banded around for a long time. And so I thought I would bandy it around a bit more. It's kind of used as a phrase that kind of to shut people down, like there's only one, there's only, there's only one view and oh, basically you're not able to offer an opinion, another alternative opinion because that's the way and you've got to sort of not say anything else. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. It's a kind of, it's a totalitarian expression disguised as democracy. And then if you look at the um, the particular people who were expressing it, uh, it was enraging. And uh, by that time, of course, I had no vote in the UK because I'd been out of the country too long. 
So all I could do was fume silently from the sidelines, which I still do.
it's interesting how how your solar material tracks world events and from a political and social aspect. And we have COVID idiots here, which obviously a, a commentary on <laughs> some of the most stupid aspects of a certain strand of thinking in re- relation to COVID. Yeah, indeed. Although I, I would say this is not necessarily a recent development. That, you know, even you know, in Radio Star's times, we were, yeah. there was the Beast of Barnsley and there was Sex in Chains, and these are all yeah. somewhat disguised, but comments on how um, the media was dealing with uh, particular issues and leading people down certain paths. Uh, yeah, COVID idiots. Well, of course, in Germany, I'm not entirely sure how it... I don't think it's so different in the UK. There are... People who declare that um, COVID is a, an invention and a, a, a it's a totalitarianism by the back door, and you know, and then they go off to hospital. So I felt I would revisit my old song about yeah. The first this is a this is a remake, of course. This is me covering myself. The first song was called Idiots, and it was about Brexit. <laughs> I feel this is a rabbit hole down which we should not go. But um, COVID idiots was a remake of uh, idiots and adapted for the following year or whenever. It was. Yes. Yeah. 
so now we get to our new album, Another Word. The first of the, the three tracks is um, 11,000, and then we'll be playing But Have They Moved the Inner Parts of the Machines. So do you want, <laughs> do you want to explain the concept of this album? Because there is obviously we're talking about the commentary on political and social events. It's based on the transcript of this phone call that Donald Trump made to the George, uh, the, the governor of Georgia, mm. in which he asked him to find 11,779 votes, which would enable him to retain the presidency uh, and issued various mafia-style threats and blah, blah, blah. And then, as we know, it was recorded by the governor for his own um, safety. And then when Trump began issuing lies, hey... No, surely, surely not. They made the transcript available. And then, okay, and then I, then I was thinking, oh, because most of, my, most of my rage has been driven by Donald Trump in recent years, and so when he lost the presidency, I thought, I'm buggered. You know, where, where can I find something to be enraged about? And then I saw this transcript, and then I thought, oh, okay, there we are. There we go. So I, I set it. So in other words, I found bits inside it without changing them and looked for how I could structure them into pieces of music, um, which is why there are so many tracks on the album, 31, and why it's so short, because 31 is really a lot of work, I can tell you. So it's short in duration, but it's, it's long in effort. Densely packed. Exactly. Never mind the quality, feel the width, or possibly the other way around. Uh, <laughs> they were told that they can't vote because they've already been voted for, and it's a very sad thing. They walk out complaining, but the numbers large. go and the final track the appropriately titled thank you everyone it'd be good to sort of tell people where to go to to find out more about your career martin as well as obviously the the new album and other words yeah it's all there on my website which is martingordon.de which stands for deutschland (laughs) (laughs) you're very productive at the minute and um it looks like you've bursting full of ideas and in terms of your solo career. And I imagine if people keep looking back at, at your website and going onto YouTube, there'll be plenty more coming along. Well, I had big plans for this year because um, last year I, I stepped into the world of um, contemporary music with this German ensemble called the Ensemble Moderne. Who, uh, who were described by Frank Zappa as his last fixed ensemble, his last 
fixed and his best ensemble. We worked together and did a concert and I played bass with them and then I actually conducted them on one of them. And we had all these big plans for this year, which were cancelled, of course, because of COVID. But, you know, as at least Germany and Europe, it seems to be moving out of it. I have a feeling that uh, these plans can be resurrected. And, um, yeah, contemporary classical, here I come. So as we move out of, hopefully, touch wood, uh, COVID, some of these other ideas and projects, you can, can actually go forth and do some sort of live events and that kind of thing. Exactly. That's, I mean, th- th- there is a concert planned um, by the Ensemble Modern in, uh, when is it? You know, February 22. Well, it's June. Yeah, I guess maybe that might come off. That was the highlight of, of my decade, I must say. Martin, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. And um, the width and the quality of your work is is very impressive. <laughs> nice bit of smatter. <laughs> Great. Well, thanks very much for doing it because um, I appreciate it. Cheers then. Bye-bye. See ya. Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.